Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. by the Valley Beit Midrash, uh, very, very impressed because the health of a Jewish community is, I think, is often um, reflected in how much it learns and what it learns and, uh, you know, just looking at the kind of programming that's being done here. This is a program that's known by a lot of us, you know, I mean, I, I, I knew about this outfit a long, you know, as long as it's been around uh, because it does such, such nice work. Um, so it's really nice to be here. Um, and uh, nice to also to be invited along with all those other impressive speakers that you're going to be having or have had. Okay, so the topic today is about the ethics of war in Judaism. And um, this interest is really part of something, uh, you know, a larger interest that I've had in the past few years, as was suggested in the bio, um, an interest in, in how peace and violence is dealt with, not just in Judaism, but in all three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, but... Most of my writings have been on Judaism because that's been my uh, specialty. And uh, as Ishmael mentioned, I've, I've, had, I've written two books on, on this subject. Uh, one is this, The Peace and Violence of Judaism, which is kind of a general overview of like the history of how peace and violence has been treated in Judaism. And then this more specific book that came out this past year, which deals with the ethics of war um, in Judaism, in particular the rules of war in, in traditional Jewish law, in halakha. Um, and um, I'm going to be doing things in reverse order. I'll be speaking about the second project now, and then the first project tonight. Come to think of it, it's kind of like doing things backwards, but I think if you, if you know me, you'll see that actually I do that a lot in life. You know, it's like <laughs> I, I do things in the wrong order all the time. Um, but uh, anyway, maybe it's good to go from the specific to the, to the general here. Um, and uh, before I start, look, I, I should just say one thing. I'm actually a really unlikely candidate for writing a book about war. I've never served in an army, and that's probably a good thing. I'd be a terrible soldier. I'm, you know, a coward by nature, and I am always grateful. And I mean this very sincerely. Whenever I meet the servicemen, you know, who defend this country or defend Israel, I'm always very grateful that there are people that will do this because I just don't think, you know, I just don't, don't feel I'm that brave a guy. Um, and the second thing is, you know, I'm, I'm, another reason I'm an unlikely candidate for this book is that I'm not really an expert on Jewish law. My area is really in Jewish thought. But, uh, you know, we academics have this wonderful talent about, of, we're able to speak about things that we may not know very much about, but make it sound as if we're experts. And I'm hoping to give you a really good display of that talent today. Um, so listen. Um, You're the first to uh, share that with us. <laughs> of all of our... Uh... It's so true. Anyway, we're, you know, this is what we're trained to do. Anyway, look, so all joking aside, we do have a serious topic here, so I'll, I, I, there won't be too many, too many more jokes. Uh, this book has a particular focus. Um, and what it does is that it, is that it explores how... Um, it explores how Israeli rabbis, in particular, um, identi who identify with religious Zionism, we're talking about Orthodox rabbis, have dealt with the issue of war since 1948, since Israel was, you know, had, was created. And there are five rabbis in particular that I analyze here. Um, I won't assume anything. Some of these rabbis are names that many, you know, many of you may know. Some of them you may, may not know at all. Or you may not some of you may not recognize any of the names, um, and, and I don't necessarily expect you to. You know, Two of the names that most people who are at least involved in this kind of study would recognize are Rabbi Cook, Rav Cook, and the other is Rav Gorin. Um, and then there are three more obscure figures, uh, Rabbi Isaac Alevi Herzog, Rabbi, El Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, and Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli. But if you don't recognize any of the names, don't worry about it. That's what I'm here for. Um, the topic 
Why, do I, why did I write a book about this? Because, well, we were, I like to write on fascinating topics, and this seemed like a fascinating one. Um, and for a couple of reasons, I want to explain to you what was interesting to me here. First of all, again, all of the rabbis I'm speaking about are Zionists, rabbis, they are all Orthodox rabbis. And in Orthodox Judaism, in traditional Jewish law, you can't simply create laws out of nothing. You always have to find precedent in previous sources. You know, you're basing your judgments on biblical law, on Talmudic law, you're looking at medieval uh, codes, an enormous body of literature. The laws have to flow out of the texts. They have to flow out of God's word as embodied in those texts. But the problem was that there were very few sources in 1948 in Jewish law about this subject for the obvious reason that Jews had not had a state in 1800 years. Jewish law had evolved during centuries when Jews had no state, no army, and certainly couldn't wage war. But now all of those things had suddenly become a reality and therefore these rabbis had to deal with it. They had to construct laws of war really from very little precedent. There were places in Jewish law that had talked about these things, places in the Talmud, but the material was so meager that the, these rabbis had to show great ingenuity and creativity to create a body of law and war. And watching their minds work, this is what I found so interesting. There was a second thing that I found very interesting here, and that is Orthodox Jews, you know, when they deal with halakha, don't, don't usually come up with laws quickly. Um, usually laws, you know, people are smiling, right? Are, have you ever wondered why, you know, we haven't dealt with the women's issue? Um, you know, because, well, it takes time, you know. Anyway, it takes a lot of time for, for law to develop in any religious tradition because, after all, you're dealing with God's word and you don't just sort of do what you want. Um, and so laws in orthodoxy evolve very slowly. But here there was no time. They had to be created very quickly because in 1948, when, the first, you know, when, when Israel finds itself at war, uh, they couldn't say, well, this is going to take a while to figure out whether we can wage war. Number three, also very interesting, another fascinating element in all of this, there were major obstacles in halakha. Not only didn't the laws exist for war in 1948, but there were actually major obstacles to waging war. There were real problems because, you see, Jewish law in developing over 18 centuries had actually developed principles of ethics that made it very difficult for a Jewish, a modern Jewish state to wage war, even a defensive war. I'll get back to that. I'll explain in a little bit what I mean by that. But just trust me, it was very difficult for war of any kind to be justified in Jewish law as it had evolved over those 18 centuries. And so not only, you know, they have meager material and it had to be, you know, they had to construct this quickly, but there were, there were big questions about whether, you, whether a Jewish state could actually engage in war. And they had to get around these obstacles. And again, what I saw in, their, in the writings of these figures who were grappling with it was very great ingenuity. Now, let me just add in here. The book, you know, I've said the book deals mainly with orthodox figures. Uh, I don't want you to take that as, any, any, as having any political intent. Um, I didn't mean to exclude other denominations. It's just that the most interesting and the largest body of writings about this issue were, did, in fact, come from orthodox Jews. However, there's some very fine stuff that have written, have, have, has been written by conservative rabbis, also by, even by reform rabbis who are, you know, in some ways less interested in, 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 you know, in, in this kind of topic. Um, and those did, in fact, in some ways enter into my research. But it's really, most of this is really an orthodox enterprise. The other thing that, um, the reason why you have to take the orthodox view seriously here is you have to, you have to know, many of you probably do know, that Orthodox Jews are becoming increasingly, have become very influential in Israeli affairs, in political affairs. They wield tremendous power. The settlement movement wields tremendous power. And also, and this is really something that we have to think about, an increasing percentage of soldiers and officers in the Israeli army are Orthodox. Some huge percentage are, are Orthodox. Like every half of the officers are Orthodox. And they listen to their rabbis, not just to their superiors. And so it's very important for everybody to understand where they're coming from. Okay, so that's my, that's my introduction. So let's now get into the nitty gritty, the subject matter. And I wanna begin by elaborating on the obstacles that these rabbis had to deal with 
um, when trying to construct laws of war in Judaism, and there are several, and I'll, I'll, but I'll, I'll describe just two of them, one of which I, I really want to focus on. But here, here were like the two main obstacles that, that they had to deal with. The first is some background. According to Jewish law, you cannot force anyone to risk their lives to save another person. It's not allowed. So if a person is drowning in a river, and you are standing on the shore, there's no obligation for you to go in and save that person if it means that you're gonna die as well. The general principle says his blood isn't redder than yours. Meaning that if you're in a safe situation, you don't have to remove yourself from that situation and endanger yourself. You have a right to remain safe. And there's a famous case in the Talmud that, in, it, that uh, illustrates this. I wouldn't be surprised if most of you know this, where you know, two men are walking in the desert. They have only one bottle of water. between. You know, one of them has a bottle of water, and the other one doesn't. And there's only enough water for one person to survive. What's the rule? Does he share it with his friend and they both die? Or does, is he allowed to drink the water himself and you know, not worry about the other person? Um, the answer is really is the latter, very firmly the latter in the Talmud, meaning that you are, you are allowed to drink the water and the other person then dies. Now, you know, we can have a long discussion about this and about what it is, but just take this as a, as a given for the time being. But again, you see the principle which makes some degree of sense is that if you are in a safe place, you have a right to remain safe. Now, does it mean you can't voluntarily give them the water? No. In fact, there are some people that say you can. But you have the right to remain safe and stay in that status. Uh, you don't have to risk your life for another individual um, in a way that would endanger your own life. But if that's the case, how do you have an army? How do you have an army? The war is by very nature an enterprise in which you coerce people to serve to defend others. We call it a draft. Now you might ask, you know, aren't soldiers also defending themselves? Well, not necessarily. You can have a soldier that's living a thousand miles from the front says, I don't really, it's somebody else's problem. Or you can have a soldier that doesn't care if the enemy wins. You have such people sometimes. Or you can be maybe a pacifist. Or maybe you're just plain scared. You don't want to go to war, right? You really shouldn't be, according to Jewish law, you're not required to, to sacrifice yourself from, for, for, for another person's well-being. So, you know, how do you have an army? And yet we know you have to, you know, Israel has to have an army. Every state has to have an army. And you have to require soldiers to fight because without that there would be no state. This is a major halachic problem that has to be dealt with, right? Problem number two. All right, everybody got this so far? Problem number two. This, is now involved, this now involves the actual waging of war. In Jewish law, another principle, you are not allowed to kill an assailant who is threatening you, you if you have to kill innocent people as well. So if somebody is shooting at you but is using innocent bystanders as human shields, you cannot shoot back, you must, you must die rather than kill an innocent individual, because the principle here is the reverse of the, of the one I just stated. You know, your blood isn't redder than theirs. This, you know, it's really the reverse of what I just said. The innocent bystander is in a relative position of safety, um, because he's not, being, he's not the one being shot at, so the person has a, that person has a right to stay in that position and you aren't allowed to endanger that person's life to save your own. Now, if you think about it, of course, this is also a huge obstacle to waging war because what do all wars involve? The killing of innocent civilians. Now, there was a time, of course, when that might not have been such a concern, like, you know, in the 18th century when they had these big battles, you know, the French and the British on fields where they were, you know, sort of separate from everyone else. You know, maybe in that situation, you know, you didn't have the problem of, civilian casualties, but you certainly have it today uh, in the kind of war we, we, wars we fight. And in fact, the problem is getting even worse because a lot of, a lot of Israel's enemies, cert certainly, a couple at least, you know, like to put themselves in places where you have to kill civilians. 
So what do, you, what do you do? In Jewish law, you really aren't allowed to kill your enemy if you're going to kill innocent civilians. Now, what do you do? So what do you do? These are huge obstacles um, that Orthodox rabbis, no rabbi really had to think of before the creation of the State of Israel, but now they had to deal with them. And so my book focuses on these problems and how the rabbis got around them. Now, as far as the first problem, the first, it's, interestingly enough, of the two problems, you may be surprised to find that the first problem was actually the one that they worried about the most. It was about how you could draft soldiers, how you could force people to risk their lives for the nation. And that's because the rabbis that I was analyzing were rabbis who lived primarily in the early decades of the state, 40s, 50s, between the 40s and the 80s, um, when the big question was, how do you justify assembling an army, and where do you know, Orthodox Jews fit into all of that? That was the major challenge. But we all know that in recent decades, right, since the Lebanon War, the Intifadas, you know, the, the various wars that have been fought in recent years, it, the question of civilian casualties has really now become the big issue. And so what I want to do for you know, this discussion here today is to talk about civilian casualties. I think that's the one that everybody is most curious about. Um, and that, by the way, is going to mean that I'll be supplementing some of the material that I explore in my book with material that I, ha that I haven't written about yet. Um, because uh, my book, as I said, deals primarily with another era, really, an earlier era when this wasn't so much the issue. All right, so let's talk a little bit about civilian casualties. Um, this is a concern that, that every, every ethical society has. Um, any society that grapples with ethics is going to deal with the question of what happens in war when you have, almost, when it's almost guaranteed that you're going to kill innocent civilians. Now, generally, what Western ethicists and international law does with this is that it says you can kill civilians. Um, War confers a special, when there's an official declaration of war, an official war between parties, between countries, you have a special dispensation which allows you to kill innocent civilians. However, you need to minimize those casualties. And there are two reasons that are generally given by ethicists. And here, I'm not talking about Jewish ethicists. I'm really talking about just in, in the international sphere, which is a good place to begin uh, a discussion about this. Two reasons. First of all, since, you know, civilians aren't fighting. They can't properly defend themselves, and therefore they shouldn't be deliberately targeted. And we call that principle non-combatant immunity. Right? The non-combatant combatant is immune, or should be immune, from attack. The second principle, which is going to sound like the first but is slightly different, is simply the principle of proportionality. When you fight a war, the idea is that you should, do, you should use the least amount of deadly force possible to achieve victory. And the reason why this second principle is a little bit different is that it applies not just to civilians, but also even to the soldiers on the other side. If you, if you can wage war and, say, kill a quarter of the soldiers rather than all of the soldiers on the other side, you're supposed to indulge in the least amount of killing possible the least amount of damage possible to the other side. And civilians, of course, are included in that principle of proportionality as well. Um, well, can I go to the end, and then I'd be happy to talk. Um, happy to answer any questions. Now, most Israeli Orthodox rabbis take a similar approach, right? Their basic approach is that civilian casualties, you know, again, it is, you, know, they, they, you, you can kill them, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't kill any more than you have to. You know, and so in some sense, what, on a very basic level, what these rabbis say about this issue isn't all that interesting. What I find most interesting is how they justify this approach. You know, everything has to come out of the Bible or, and or rabbinic texts, and that's, you see, what I find most interesting. I've always been fascinated by how religious scholars interplay, with the, the interplay that they have with their tradition, with their texts. In other words, it's not what the rabbis say that's interesting to me, but it's interesting to me here, but it's, it's how they justify it. 
And so I want, I want to talk about it, and I want to do it systematically by asking a series of questions about how they arrive at a position that is somewhat similar, well, actually more so, in many ways similar to the Western approach. First of all, how do you justify killing any civilians at all, right? Remember the problem, right? You can't defend yourself against an attacker if it means killing innocent bystanders. So how, how do you justify war of any kind, even wars of self-defense? Now, there are a couple of answers, interesting answers, that are given by acad uh, Jewish, Jewish scholars, rabbinical scholars, orthodox rabbis, um, to this question uh, that I'd like to talk about. There are more, but I'll, I'll, I'll deal just with two that I find the most interesting. There are a good number of them that give a kind of philosophical explanation, and this is based on a you know, 16th century figure, the Maharal uh, of Prague, um, who claims that the reason you can kill civilians in war is that in war, the individual in some sense loses his or her standing as an individual, because what you really have is the fight between two conglomerates, one nation versus another nation. And therefore, the individual, in some sense, loses his or her identity within the nation as a whole. And therefore, the reason you can kill individuals on the other side is because that individual no longer has independent standing. Now, you know, you might be horrified by such an idea, but, but no, but, this, but I'm just telling, you know, I got I to tell you, I got to tell it like it is, right? Um, and, but, and also, by the way, this is, a, this is the same reasoning as often used for the drafting of soldiers, that the reason why you can draft soldiers and put them and force them to risk their lives is because, again, the nation in war becomes elevated to something else. It becomes a kind of conglomerate of almost like one individual, where the individual really can be sacrificed for the whole. Okay, be that as it may, um, there's a second reason which I think you'll find maybe more satisfying and in some ways, you know, if just as interesting if not more. And this comes out of uh, the very intriguing thinking of Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli, um, who isn't very well known uh, on this side of the ocean, but is a, a, really was a, a, an amazing uh, ethicist on these issues. He says we're allowed to kill in war because on this issue, on the issue of civilian casualties, Jewish law has to follow international law, right? Very interesting. You go according to the laws of non-Jews in the world in general, and international law recognizes the killing of civilians as an unfortunate but acceptable byproduct of war, and therefore, you can engage in that kind of activity if you are waging a, a, a war. Now, you know, it's interesting here that Rabbi Yisraeli is relying on non-Jewish law but he does it in a very Jewish way. <laughs> he bases his idea here on the notion of dina de malchuta dina. I should have had a board here. But anyway, it basically translates as the law of the kingdom is the law. It's a principle that Jews figured out a long time ago. They used it throughout the Middle Ages. That wherever you live in, you know, whatever country you're living in, and you're all, you know, they were all living you know, under non-Jews, you had to obey the laws of the land. You had to pay your taxes. You know, you, you know the, the basic laws, you know, the governed society, they applied to you as well, as long as they, you know, didn't, you know, con conflict with the ritual obligations that Jews had. When it came to civil matters, Jews had to obey the law of the land. Well, Rabbi Yisraeli, Yisraeli does something that's unprecedented here. Unprecedented here. He says this, apply, this law actually applies also in the international arena as well. So if the, if, if the United Nations says that this is the way things should be, you know, they, international laws tells you, you, you know, you can kill civilians um, unintentionally, well, then that, that's exactly what we have to do. We, that, that we have to follow that, that principle. Um, and, Jews, and Jews, of course, can then wage defensive war, even if it means the killing of civilians. Now, he also adds something very interesting in here, and he says, you know, if it turns out that the nations decide that war should be banned, you should never wage war again, you shouldn't kill innocent civilians, we have to follow them. So very interesting, right, that an Orthodox rabbi would give that much respect and elevation to international law. Okay, so look, now, you, you know, now you've established that you, you, know, you can kill civilians, you know, innocent people in war, because that is what war is. The question now arises is that how far can you go? And here again, the rabbis are similar to West, Western ethicists. 
which, who say that you really should kill as few of them as is possible. You should really go out of your way not to kill any more people than you have to. The rabbis generally, Israeli Orthodox rabbis generally, go along with this idea. Now, you know, where, how do they justify this? Again, what I'm really interested in is not just what they say, but it's how they say it. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So there are a number of arguments here, some of which may, the first one will probably pop to mind. We're all created in God's image. This is what Rabbi Gorin says extensively in the first part of his five-volume work on war. We're created in God's image, non-Jews as well. They are exactly the same as us on this issue, and therefore you don't go killing any more people than you have to. Um, some say, well, it's the continuation of what Rabbi Israeli says. You go according to international law, which says that you should not kill wantonly, right? that you should limit the damage as much as, much as possible. And then here, let me give you a third reason that's, that, that adds a new dimension to this discussion that, that, that uh, I, I find very interesting, and that is the issue of Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the name of God, sanctifying God's name. Now, this is a halachic principle, a Jewish principle that many of you, uh, you know, may be familiar with. It basically says that we have to, as Jews, adhere to very strict ethical standards to bring honor to Judaism and to bring honor to the Torah and our God. You know, I call this the PR principle in Judaism. We're supposed to be exemplars of what is good in the world. And if we go and just kill you know, innocent civilians wantedly, of course, everybody's going to say Judaism is a terrible religion. So we have to show ourselves as compassionate. Um, and by the way, it isn't really just PR. I mean, it's really saying, look, we want to show. We are good. We're, we, we should be good as Jews. We should be good people. And we should also elevate ourselves and make ourselves um, the models, role models for others. And so you're not going to do that if you just kill civilians wantonly. You have to, you have to minimize civilian casualties. So that's a third reason why the issue of proportionality in civilian casualties is adhered to by a lot of these Orthodox rabbis. And then finally, there's a kind of a fourth reason. Has a, I, I would, I, I, there's actually a number of subcategories here, or a number of sub-reasons between this fourth idea. The fourth idea is that there are specific Jewish laws that's, that seem to represent a concern for civilian casualties, for minimizing them. And let me just give you two or three examples here. Um, one rule is that, and this actually appears in Maimonides, in his Mishneh Torah, and his Code of Jewish Law, Whenever you wage war, whenever a Jewish army wages war, it has to first give the opposing side the chance to surrender. You don't just attack. And he even applies this principle to the Canaanites and the Amalekites in the Bible, you know, who are generally treated as people that really should have been slaughtered. You actually, Maimonides says you have to call for peace before you go to war against these nations. And there could be individual dissenters. Meaning the collective has to agree? Yes. No, it has to be done. In other words, the, the, whoever leads the, into battle, I guess the king has to say, or the, or the, or the prime minister. Individual dissenters on the other side could come forth and be absorbed into the population, is the idea? That's, I don't, you know, I, it's not dealt with on that final level. Oh, okay. The call for peace has to go out. That's, 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 all, that's all that he really says about that. And, and that's, now, Maimonides doesn't tell you why you have to do this, but it would seem to be, again, a kind of a humanitarian thing that, you know, you're not supposed to kill any more than you should have, any more than you have to. Another principle in Jewish law that uh, is called up here is the principle of leaving the fourth side. Whenever an army lays siege to a city, according to Jewish law, and this also is in Maimonides, you are not allowed to, to surround the city on all four sides. You must leave an escape route. The fourth side must be left open. Seems like pretty bad military strategy in some respects, but that's another question, and actually there's a lot of debate about that issue. But why is this the case? Well, here again, you know, there, the, you know the sources don't really give you reasons, but the, the suspicion is that, well, this is also a humanitarian thing. You want to allow the civilians to flee. Okay, so here we have a number of reasons that takes us one step further, right? It justifies how, how it is that you can fight war, or... I, why it is that you must minimize civilian casualties according to a, in, in a Jewish framework, 
various reasons. But of course, if you think, let's, let's take this a little deeper. Minimizing civilian casualties, which you really need to do according to these principles and laws, often means putting your own soldiers at risk, right? So this is the big dilemma. Um, and the wars in Gaza, of course, have highlighted the problem perhaps more than any other conflict that we've had. You know, Israel has to fight an enemy that's, you know, that's ensconced in civilian areas. What, you know, what do you do? Do you just go, go to the air and just carpet bomb the place? You'll, you'll, you'll certainly solve the problem that way, but you're going to kill a lot of civilians. Or do you go in on the ground and then risk your, your, your own soldiers in order to save more civilians on the other side? Now, this is really where the difficulties come in, not just for Jews, but also in Western ethics. And, and, you know, in, and in Western ethics, let me start with the Western side of this critical issue. Um, in Western ethics, you're really supposed to take both into account. You, know, you need to increase the risk to your soldiers uh, to save enemy civilians, but everybody understands that you can't do that beyond certain limits. And the problem here, of course, is that it's very hard to come up with rules and generalizations. And what the ethicists generally do and what international lawyers do is that you have to kind of take every situation in, its, you know, in itself. Each war is different, each battle is different, and therefore armies have to make judgment calls in each situation. Okay, so I can't give you a satisfying answer uh, on that, at least with the, with the Western tradition, except to say that they see both issues and understand both issues, um, and that both issues have to be, be taken into account when deliberations are made. Now, what about Isra what do the Israeli rabbis do with this? This is really where it gets difficult, and this is where you really begin to see tensions and difficulties within the orthodox camp, between the more right-wing orthodox, the more left-wing orthodox, about how to deal with this issue. Um, some, you know, will argue, you know, uh, the, the, you know, for the Western position that's saying, well, look, you know, um, uh, you know, you have to take both, both issues into account. You have to protect our soldiers but you might have to risk our soldiers if it's going to mean killing thousands of civilians. But the right-wing rabbis, you see there's a camp on the right that really rebels against this idea and really says our soldiers always take precedence, and even if it means carpet bombing. You know, there, you, you have, you know, the, in the journals that I read, uh, you know, all of these journals are Israeli journals in which these opinions are, are, are expressed. There are a lot of rabbis who will say, look, you know, <laughs> Carpet bomb, yeah, go ahead, just level the place. We, we, we can't, I mean, I've, I've read rabbis who are you know, very, very much on the right who will say, we won't, we shouldn't risk one Israeli life for the people in Gaza. Now again, um, um, you know, I, I, I say these things only because I'm a good academic trying to show you the, the gamut of opinion. Um, the interesting question for me, beyond getting you know, getting beyond the, the emotional issues that are involved is, you know, what about the sources that we just cited about compassion? What about, you know, everyone being created in the image of God? Well, you see, what's mar one of the things I'm fascinated by in the research that I do always is, you know, looking at how positions are justified. And so here's what these right-wing rabbis will tell you. Um, on the issue, and I'll just give you a couple of examples here. This is the most interesting one, I think. The issue of Kiddush Hashem. Remember what we said. One of the reasons why you have compassion for civilians is because we are Jews who sanctify God's name in all of our actions. And we have to show the world that we're good people because the reputation of Judaism and of God's name depends on it. Right now, for a lot of people, that's a no-brainer. But look at the other side of this. You see what the right-wing rabbis say, and they have this in a number of places in their writings, is that Kiddush Hashem means sanctifying God's name uh, by winning wars. You don't sanctify God's name by showing compassion. You, show, you sanctify God's name by demonstrating the power of the Israeli army. And that's what brings honor to Judaism. That's what brings honor to God by showing the truth of his religion and the victory of God is on our side. And therefore, our soldiers always take precedence. That's, that's the view. Very interesting move. And by the way, one that does have its, you know, you can support that in the sources.
What about things like calling for peace? You know, the call for peace, leaving the fourth side. I mean, aren't these just no, aren't these obviously principles that are meant to, are, are meant to save civilians? Don't they reflect compassion toward the innocent? Well, it's very easy to get rid of this by just saying that those principles don't apply in defensive wars. Because you see, if you actually look back on the sources, what you'll find is that it is a little ambiguous. There are actually different kinds of wars in Judaism, in halakha. There are also wars that are wars of a more aggressive sort, which I'll be talking a little bit more about tonight. Not defensive wars, but actually wars of aggression. And what the ra these rabbis will tell you is, you see, when it comes to ca calling for peace or leaving the foresight, it's about those wars. But when it comes to a defensive war, when it's an enemy that is coming to get you and wants to kill you, like Hamas, you have no obligation to call for peace because there's no point in calling for peace. You have no obligation to, to open up the fourth side when you're besieging their cities because these people, again, are out to obliterate you. All right? So it's interesting how you know, the same sources, this is, I think, one of the things that I, you know, that I find so interesting here, is that the same sources that seem to be so obviously, on one level, uh, interpretable um, to minimize civilian casualties can be read the other way. Now, again, the, the, the right wing isn't saying just kill everyone for the sake of it. Their belief is it's really about the question of the choice. If it's between their soldiers and our civilians, our soldiers always come first. So these are the dilemmas, uh, and the, this is, these are the issues about which debates are taking place in Israel among Orthodox rabbis in, you know, in, 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 their, in their journals, in their magazines, in their newsletters, in their communal newsletters about all these issues. Now look, let me, let me know, let's sum up, and I'm, I want to leave a good bit of time for questions here. Um, So what, 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 what comes out of all of this? A couple of points. First of all, rabbis agree on the basic, on the basic approach. They all, no matter whether you're right wing or left wing, they all tend to follow the West, which is that you should minimize civilian casualties. Even the right wing will say that. If there's a way to carpet bomb so that you minimize the casualties, fine. If you can carpet bomb, bomb half of Gaza, you don't have to carpet bomb all of Gaza. So everybody agrees that you should minimize civilian casualties. The real debate is, in, is, is when it's a choice between risking our soldiers um, over their civilians. And that debate you know, evolves, involves a, a, a grappling with these various Jewish sources, which I hope I've displayed are a lot more slippery than you might want them to be. Um, you know, everybody on, 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 the, on the liberal side will say, but it's obvious. But then everyone on the right-wing side will say, oh, no, not obvious at all. You know. And they, therefore, are very divided over, over the extent to which our soldiers take precedent over their, their civilians, or vice versa. Now, look, you may dis be disappointed that Jewish law doesn't provide a clearer position on this issue. But I've always found, actually, the most important Questions in Judaism don't have clear answers. Um, and I think, you know, as I've lived life, I would say the most important questions in life in general don't have clear answers. And I've always wondered whether maybe God wants it that way. You know, maybe our goal as Jews and as human beings is to wrestle with these issues. You know, maybe it's God telling us that he expects a lot from us because we are created in his image, and therefore, it's incumbent upon us. He's kind of handing over these issues to us and telling us, debate this amongst yourself. I want to see what you come up with. And if that's the case, well, we can only hope that we're up to the challenge. Thank you. <laughs> Questions? The, the, the traditional distinction between the military on the one hand and the civilians on the other hand seems to be blurred in uh, present-day Israel. And I'm not talking just about the Hamas or someone being embedded within a civilian population, but rather um, <laughs> uh, people, often young people, but could be of any age, who get um, militant, go to the mosque and get all 
even right. though they were never a soldier by any Very good. definition. And I'm also reminded of an instance where an Israeli reservist was called up and um, on short notice and made the wrong turn trying to find out where it yes. was went into an Arab village and was killed by individuals that would ordinarily be considered civilians. Right. Right. So the, the, the traditional distinctions that you're drawing from the, the rabbis are drawing have to be um, accommodated to the present day reality. Well, the question you're asking is actually a great question. Um, I'm not saying that just to flatter you, because in fact, Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli, when he wrote a, you know, maybe the most important text on this issue, a 40-page um, halachic um, discussion on, on the issue of war, he was dealing with precisely that situation. What do you do? How do you view those who support terrorists in Arab villages, Jordanian villages? Do they, com do they become combatants? Are they fair game? Can you kill them the way you kill soldiers? His answer was yes. So that if you could go into a village, right, and it's actually happened because it, the, the whole thing was about the Kibya incident in 1953, when terrorists were coming over the border from Jordan in the newly established state of Israel and killing Israeli civilians, and, and, the, and the army knew where those terrorists were coming from and knew that the villages in Jordan were supporting them. And so they sent in a brigade, which included Ariel Sharon, in which they killed 60 or more men, men women, and children to say, you're, you know, this is, now they didn't do it according to Jewish law, right? Because Israel is a secular state. But Rabbi Israeli decided to write a halachic tshuva, a responsum, in order to ask the question, was this acceptable in Jewish law? And his answer was yes, because those people were combatants. combatants. However, there are a lot of people that have argued against him and said, you can't think that way. Right, because I mean, so support. I mean, what? What if somebody just raises the Palestinian flag? Does you know? Do you, do you kill that person? How do you determine when a, when a person is a combatant because they're supporting uh, the cause? But if 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 there's been a lot of debate in the Orthodox community about that vis-a-vis -vis Jewish law, the same, you have the same debate in Western law as well. Um, and in Western law, generally, these standards are much more strict as to what you can, what you, for including a civilian as a combatant. Meaning that the only civilians you can kill to begin with, without asking any questions, are civilians that will do things like work in a munitions factory. If you bomb the munitions factory with civilians in there, you're perfectly justified in doing that. But the minute that guy goes home, you can't kill him, you know, when he, when he goes home from his job. Um, I'm not answering the question because, again, there, you know, uh, these, these things are subject to debate, but the question you're asking, I could give another talk on. I mean, literally, I could give another talk on because there is so much debate in Western law and also in Jewish law about who you consider, whom you consider a combatant precisely because of the problems that you've raised. Um, you, you started out this discussion by saying, ah, and there was this great urgency in 48 yes. to resolve these issues. Well, given that 99.9% .9 of the Orthodox community in 48 uh, didn't think that Israel should be a state, yeah. I doubt there was really this great urgency. But, but you, you sort of covered that by saying, I'm going to talk about Zionist Orthodox. Well, here's sort of the problem. You never got around to telling us how these people got around the objection to their particular form of Zionism, which is one of other 20, that you're going to support this particular state at this particular time. Not that the Jewish people should have a state, but, you know, that this yeah. is it. Uh, and if you don't, if you don't answer that preliminary question, I don't see how you ever get to any of these other questions. Of course, of course. But again, I would have to be invited back for another. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, you know, you say, if, absolutely. Look, the, uh, we're talking about the religious Zionist community, and that is very much to be divided from the Haredi ultra-Orthodox community, which did not, accept the, the accept, did not accept the state of Israel as a legitimate Jewish state, or really as a state of any kind, um, because of its own version of theology. And that really is a very different discussion. That really would, would require a whole talk, because what you have really are two very different ideas about what the Jewish state was. I'll be getting into the that. The community virtually didn't exist. The what? The which community? The one community virtually No, no. What, what, the, yeah. Yeah, they didn't exist and they were very small in numbers, but now they exist. Now they exist and they have become and they've become very important. We're talking about a group of you know, you know, your point is very good, and that is that look, you're talking about a group of Jews in Israel that constitutes about 10% of the population. But when, I, when you say that 30% of all recruits, you know, a lot of the secular Jews are no longer serving the army and 30% of the recruits are these religious Zionists, they're very significant. When half the officer corps in, 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 of, of the officer corps in Israel, uh, in the Israeli army is religious Zionists, then they become significant. So you're right, initially they were not significant at all, but once they once the state of Israel was created, and especially after 67, when the territories, you know, those territories were captured and the settlements were established, they become very, they become very politically significant. So when were these writings between the four, mainly between the 40s and the 80s, with, with the exception of Ruff Cook, who was very early, but the reason why he has to be included in this book is that he began to deal with these issues in a very sort of vague theoretical way before anyone else did, and therefore, no book could be written without first grappling with his views. But you're right, in his era, he had very few followers. Now, to get to the issue of the ultra-Orthodox, right? so I think I've established that even though this group is small, it's very significant. Um, with respect to the ultra-Orthodox community, they actually play a role here, and I'll tell you why. Almost, in fact, all of the rabbis that I've here, that I've named, were rabbis that were trained in Haredi ultra-Orthodox institutions. And they left that community. Ruff Cook was a Zionist against the grain in Eastern Europe and then moves to, you know, moves to this Palestine place against everybody's advice, right? And you look at Rabbi Herzog, Rabbi Waldenberg, Gara and Yisraeli, they were all educated in ultra-Orthodox yeshivas. My theory is that when they were talking about these issues, your questions are so good. Um, when they were talking about these issues, they were actually looking over their shoulder, trying to convince the ultra-Orthodox to come on board. That's one of the major, you see, you don't have to read the book now because I'm kind of giving it all away. But basically, one of the major conclusions I come to is that why did they focus so much on drafting, on assembling an army? Why weren't they more concerned about civilian casualties? You know my theory is? because they were talking to their ultra-Orthodox peers. They had broken from that community, they had, but in some ways they still felt a tie with that community. The relationship of these rabbis to the ultra-Orthodox community was a very complicated one. And so what they did was they talked about drafting, saying, you know what? Maybe you're sort of skittish about this whole idea of a Jewish state, but it's here and you need to serve in the army. It was really trying to appeal to those ultra-Orthodox rabbis to send their young people into the army. It didn't work, obviously, right? It, it, the division has remained very bitter, but that's my theory. Yeah? So on the topic of attempting not to kill civilians, our enemy is, has no compunction about killing us right. and killing all of our civilians. So if we go in there tentatively and say, I can't shoot that guy because he's got his wife and his kids next to him, we're now leaving that same enemy available to come in and kill all of our women and children and other non-combatants. Okay. So do they discuss that? Yes. As far as yes. Part of the discussion was? Yes, and it ties in a little bit to the first question it's answered, and that is what if you have a hostile population that is supported... What if they're going to support terror, their, the terrorists by feeding them and housing them and hiding them? That was your question, really. And also, what if they are training their children? What if they themselves, when they're given this, even if they're not wearing a uniform, but you know, would be happy if they were, they'd be happy to come and kill you? Yes, these things are all, are all discussed. And uh, again, what you get is a full divide of the kind that I've talked about going, that goes both ways. There are some rabbis who will say, look, 
you could end up kill, you could just kill everybody on the other side if, 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 you, if you use that, if you take that logic to its extreme. Uh, but there are also some that will say, and they've said exact, almost explicitly with the wording you've said, they, they, they would kill us in a heartbeat and therefore this is different. We shouldn't have compassion. Our soldiers take precedent over their civilians. So yes, there is that, you know, both, both sides are argued on that issue. In today's situation, yeah. is there a side among the two that has a greater pull? Ah, uh, that's a really, you know, that actually should have put, should have put that in my talk, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of hearing this stuff for the first time and I am really, to a certain extent, stunned. Well, uh, I'll stun you a little bit more. Maybe, maybe I'll tell you what you don't uh, want to hear. People need to, need, to, need to exist at all well, that's it. You know what? Shmuley will have to invite me to get given yet another talk about why the Jewish people should exist. I've sometimes wondered that myself. But, um, but uh, you know, we're here and we're doing the best that we can. Shmuley and I were actually talking about this. You know, in a terrible world, we just kind of have to put one, one foot in front of the other. Uh, the, the short answer to that is that the, is it, is it the harsher side is, is, is definitely ascendant. It's definitely, it definitely has, it definitely is, is, is more, it's more vocal, it's more popular. Um, and in recent years, I think it has been growing. However, there is a pretty good, you know, at least in the religious Zionist camp, you have the other side as well. So you, know, you, want, you don't want to lose all hope here. I don't, know, I don't know if I'd use the word harsh. I think the more practical side is maybe a better way, or at least for me, a more comfortable way. Of and what's pra practical in what sense? Well, I think if your survival is at, is, uh, at stake, which I believe it is in, yeah. in today's environment, uh -huh. The 500 missiles from a week ago. Right. A missile hits a school. Yeah. What do you think the IDF is going to do in that case? Yeah. Right. Right. So that says to me then that, that this potential tragedy that's coming is acceptable before we go in because of some of the halalic halachic yeah. um, views. Makes no sense to me. Well, I'm still late. Are you, are, do, you, do you feel, when you talk about pragmatic, is that the harsher or the more compact? That's more pragmatic. Ah, OK, so you know what? I think I misunderstood you. Yeah, as I'm saying, we should take this. I'm surprised they're not taking up. I don't know everything. We don't know what's going on and all the information behind the scenes. But I'm just, the context of the, that you went with the civilian, it was always the, it, it was, what, what Linda said about the civilians on their side. Mm -hmm. I don't take, no, no, don't take what I'm saying to too much of an extreme. It doesn't go quite that far. It just means that, that you have to take it into, into you know, no, no, no Israeli rabbi, no Israeli religious Zionist rabbi is going to say, it's a choice between our soldiers and, this, and, and, and their civilians. Uh, we favor their civilians. The question is whether you even have the discussion about their civilians. In other words, how much, it's often a question of how much, how much risk do you take? Do you take any risk at all? Because you know, there's there's what you might have is a choice between, say, carpet bombing all of Gaza, which is, entails no risk, or it might mean a ground operation in which you risk you do risk some lives. But maybe the, you know that's really where the question comes in. But no, you don't have you don't have that kind of you certainly don't have that kind of extreme view that only their civilians count. Not at all. It's just what we're doing really here is, is these are very subtle issues. And some of it involves splitting hairs, but that's what you need to do in these sorts of difficult situations. Other, yeah, you had your hand yeah. up for a while. Um, so you talked about uh, civilians that would definitely support, say, a Hamas terrorist. Right. right. What about a true innocent? What do the rabbis say about that? We know that Hamas will store things in schools. Yeah. Right? And they're going to, just like you were talking about this past mm -hmm. week with all the rockets coming in, I think to myself, my God, I can never hurt somebody else's child, but what if they have rockets that they're pointing towards my children? Then I don't know, I, I'm really to ponder it, and Rabbi, maybe you could answer, I don't know what the Torah would say about that. Like, what, what is the right answer? 
Well, again, this is, but that's really what my whole talk was about. It's about those very issues. Now, the thing is that, it, at least in principle, I mean, even in international law, so if, somebody is storing, if somebody is storing missiles in a, in a school, uh, there are ethicists, Western ethicists, and certainly these Orthodox rabbis would tell you, hey, you, you bomb the school, you know? You try, you know, now look, you have to take every precaution possible. The dropping of leaflets. But we know that they do this specifically because they're yes. very sophisticated with PR and they want, I'm sorry to say that, but it's like Golda Meir said, when they love their children yes, more yes, than they hate us, yes. then there will be peace. Yes. So we know that they're going to put um, vulnerable individuals in harm's way. All right. Well, again, if they, if they're, if you're really raising the whole issue of human shields. And in this case, if you, again, it involves a calculation. Well, actually, before we get to the calculation, the principle is you are, in principle, allowed to kill those human shields. But the question is, is there a way of doing it so that you, again, minimize the casualties? One thing, by the way, that I haven't talked about here, which ties into your question, actually ties into a lot of questions, is that there is respect in Jewish law for the opinions of armies and army strategists. You know, frequently what you have in these, in these um, chuvot, in these responses about war-related issues is, uh, well, heroes with all the Jewish sources say, but you know, we also have to ask, we have to ask the, the army generals, what does make sense? You know, how can we win this war but minimize casualties? <coughs> and I think, look, you know, my sense is that the Israeli army does its best not to bomb schools when it uh, doesn't have to, but in situations where it's absolutely critical for the war, that it, you have no choice. May I ask a second question? Sure. You talked about the international community yeah. right? and having to follow the laws of the international community. When the UN spends 50% of its time <laughs> in Israel, Israel yes. obviously can't, it doesn't make sense. Yes, right? absolutely. So Oh, they don't, they, they, you know, the issues that you're raising is one that's actually discussed in the sources. And, and, and some of them, in fact, you know, I, I presented, you know, the rabbi who in the 1950s is saying, well, we have to follow international law and look at what the United Nations tells us. That was before, you know, even then, I mean, he kind of knew how bad the United Nations was. But over the years, you have a lot of pushback on that. A lot of, there are a lot of Israeli Orthodox rabbis who, who just dismiss this and say, you know, <laughs> go to the United Nations. You know? Now, the thing is that international law and the United Nations are not necessarily the same thing because the laws are often stated not as anti-Israel laws. They're just laws. Um, and so you can't ignore those so easily. They, they don't have prejudice one way or the other. They're, they're just laws that try to figure out what to do in a kind of general theoretical way. Um, but yes, what you're saying, it's I, just any number of, of, of sources uh, you know, raise this issue of the United Nations and, and the international community and say, well, we're not really interested in what they have to say anyway. You know. Thank you. Yeah. Well, laws may not be written in a prejudicial manner, but interpretations, or opinions, can yes. be prejudicial. Is, do we factor that? If we're going to go in front of the International Criminal Court, and we know how they're going to come down. Do we factor that into our decision making? Oh, well, that's exactly what, yes, absolutely. I mean, there are at least some rabbis who, a lot of rabbis have said, in answer to the same, it's really the same answer, and that is that a lot of them will say, well, we really, we really don't care what the United Nations says because they've proven that they have no interest in, in our side. And, and the same might go for an international court as well. Um, because, yes, you're right, but in terms of interpretation, you know. Now, the, you know, the danger in that, of course, always is you, could, you can also justify terrible things. We're not going to listen to international law even when it's right because we don't trust them. But what if, what if international law has, says some things that maybe you know, we should listen to? You, know, you, you worry about that other side to it. The other question I have is you were talking earlier about aiding and abetting the enemy. Yes. If you're, you know, if you're in a Jordanian city, town. Right. And, okay. Well, we've seen, I don't know about Hamas necessarily, but we've certainly seen it with ISIS where they take, they take territory and they don't <clears throat> give their civilians any choice. You either support us or you die. What do we do then? You really aren't going to have to read my book after this. Shaul uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yisraeli again, right? This, this you know, remarkable rabbi um, who wrote about a lot of these issues raises that issue precisely. Um, and he comes down on the, he said, you have to take into account, because you know, the question was raised, 
that people are supporting the terrorists, are they supporting them out of duress? Because if they don't, they'll, they'll, they'll be killed. He says, you have to take that into account. You know, and he was the one who actually came up with a very harsh view that, you know, you really, that if you really, if you find out that they have, and they've done it willingly, just go in and kill them. Because they're actually combatants. They're typically, you know, they are actually combatants in the war. Um, but he was, he said, if there's any, if there's even a suspicion of, that they are doing this out of fear, you, you can't really go after them because it's not their fault. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Would you uh, care to comment on how the uh, rabbis are saying to, to deal with someone who violates these principles? If you're in battle, one of the great advantages that the Israeli military had when mm -hmm. greatly outnumbered in 47, 48, and other times was that there was more flexibility given to local oh, interesting. Uh, commanders. They weren't so centralized. Right. Yes. Right. Someone's going to go out and get stranded for a month and not see. Did the rabbis? You know, it's, it's how such do you deal with the violator? Of this such an interesting question. Decision? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I never thought about it. You know, there are some. I, I, I have. I think there is material on it, but it's very meager. Meaning that I think the rabbis are much more preoccupied with trying to figure out the rules than trying to figure out how you get punished. And I think it's part because there is a certain view, you know, there is a certain view that the law of the land is the law, and it's not just when, you're, when it's Jews living among non-Jews, but even when it's Jews living among Jews, you know, that the secular state has its own laws and those must be obeyed, and that when it comes to the issue of, of, of punishment, I think there's probably an acceptance among these rabbis that, you know, they'll, they'll go to court, they'll be, you know, they'll, if they have to be court-martialed, well, you know, they'll go through those procedures. I don't sense the rabbi, you know, I, I don't sense the rabbis have much to say. I can think of a couple of instances. I can think of a couple of instances where, yes, uh, I think Rabbi Gorin, in fact, wrote about this issue about if you, you know, shoot a stone thrower, you know, you know what, what, what should the penalty be? But they don't deal with it that much. Very interesting. Well, the question of penalty, yeah. should it be a deterrent or if it, if it gets to be why is it just a fee? Someone has to pay to go and do what they want. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, there's, there's very little material on that. Very interesting. Questions? More questions? Comments? Is there any, is there any view? I guess I'll flip over to the last question. I have, I have so many, but, this is not, but, I, but I get the car ride home, so. <laughs> um, is there any pacifist view that emerges, even among the ultra-Orthodox? Oh, very interesting. That is not based on this not being a state, but essentially that, that part of this not being a state um, means that it, you can't warrant being here because it will lead to death. I know of no, I know, you know, you, in a way, you, you can't have that among religious Zionists because if you go to the very basic yeah. principles of religious Zionists, it's, you know, this is, you know, Jews should have a state. Right. So, no, none, none, no pacifism. But okay, so it's very interesting, you know, are the ultra-Orthodox, you know, pacifists. On the issue of war, they are. In other words, they, you know, I, I don't know how many of you know about how extreme their views are, but if you go into the writings of some of their leading thinkers, especially, you know, around the time the state was created, what they say is that, you know, the creation of the state of Israel is a blasphemy, Right? It's, it's, the, it's, trying to it's a bunch of secular Zionists who don't observe the Sabbath who are building a state, and that's a disgrace and calling it a Jewish state. But they also say, and all they're doing with waging these wars is causing death and mayhem to the Arabs 
And to us, in other words, everybody's getting killed, and for what? For no good reason whatsoever. Of course. Oh, they, well, they talk about the fact that we, you know, that the, the vision of, you know, that the, the vision that we should have is one of subservience because we are in the exile, and it's God who brings the Messiah. We don't, we don't try to preempt the Messiah, especially secular Jews who don't even know who the Messiah is. But even the religious Zionist Jews are sinning because they are trying to preempt what really should be God's actions. And the rightful place of the Jew is to live under non-Jewish Arab rule in the land of Israel to be a good citizen and to pray for the coming of the Messiah where God will take care of them, but not us. But, they are, but you know, it's, what's interesting is that they are very, these Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum, you know, who is the Sutmer rabbi, you know, a number of decades ago, who wrote about this, one of the leading advocates of this viewpoint, really says very explicitly, you know, the wars of Israel, it's just all a disgrace. You know, we're, we, the world now knows us as people who, 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 who kill, and we're, and we're killing people for absolutely no reason. So there's, there's, there's this unhappiness that Jews are being killed and that Arabs are being killed. Let's thank Professor Eisen. <laughs> Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.